0: Tēnā koutou katoa and hello everybody. Welcome to the Lentor Intervention Podcast. My name is Ben Adelberg and I'm coming to you from Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland. Tēnā e i mana whenua o Aotearoa and we acknowledge the local tribal authorities of New
1: Zealand. g'day, I'm Emma Strutt and I'm currently coming to you from Darumbo country in Queensland. Before we dive into our conversation today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. And finally, if you like this potty, please like, share, subscribe, comment on our social media and consider buying us a coffee to help support our work. Now on with the show.
0: In our last episode with Nathan Surindran, we mentioned that degrowth is going to be a hot topic this season and we will have many more of those much-needed conversations. This episode takes a slightly different or in our guest's words, unconventional perspective uh, at the topic. And we're very excited to have another member from the Degrowth Aotearoa New Zealand who will talk from a societal community angle.
1: That's right. So today we're super excited to be talking with the fantastic Sarah Kress, who is a core committee member, at Degrowth Aotearoa. Sarah loves discussing how everything fits together from a dynamic system perspective, and we're really looking forward to chatting the ins and outs of degrowth and what community resilience and that transition process might look like under this model. Um, So as Ben alluded to, Sarah brings a wealth of life experience to our chat today, much I'm sure will come out in the conversation, but notably Sarah is also a midwife with an avid interest in working with birthing women in resource poor countries and communities. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Looking forward to this chat.
2: Oh, Kiara, you guys. Thanks so much for the opportunity to discuss these things.
0: We are here. <laughs> what uh, our listeners won't realize, it's taken us close to 40 minutes <laughs> to work technology out, which is quite ironic considering technology is kind of at the center of uh, or part of this whole degrowth problem, issue, solution. I don't know what we call it. Anyway, Sarah, as as Emma's mentioned, you have a fascinating background. So, of course, we want to hear all about it. Tell us about some, I'm not going to say all because it's a, going to be a long story, but tell us about some of your life stories, some of the experiences that have um, brought you to where you are today.
2: Oh, Well, yeah, um, thank you both so much. And I, I just want to pause really in the beginning and, and just thank you both for having these conversations because I think, um, bringing these concepts and ideas into a wider awareness is just critically important uh, in these times. So um, I do have a lot to say and the, the challenge for me will be to um, keep limited tonight. Um, and I think you know I'll, I'll give you a little bit of an overview of my background um, personally, because I think personal stories and um, kind of the, the journey of where we arrive, where we are is always interesting. Uh, and then I will talk a little bit about the, the definition of degrowth um, to give our listeners a bit of a, um, a definition. Uh, and then I'll tell you a little bit of more about how we approach degrowth from, from our perspective um, and our approach, because it is a very, very broad movement. Uh, so um, I think we always need to, to own that you know, our approach is not the only approach, but um, it's certainly a, a very exciting time for us. So I, um, how, how did I arrive here? Um, I do have an unusual background. Uh, people are often confused about where I'm from because of my accent. But I'm originally from from Germany. Both my parents are, are German. And um, my father was a, a physicist and worked in complexity and chaos theory. Uh, and because of his work, we moved to New Mexico when I was uh, quite young. I was about four. and um, And so I grew up in the the rocky mountains of new mexico and went to an unusual school i went to a, a steiner school a water school which is very holistic and uh, my mother is a teacher so uh, i was raised in a in a quite a simple sort of um you know connected way in a small school uh and, and when i finished that school i was 14 and i just couldn't couldn't imagine going into the mainstream, going into high school, uh, largely because of some books that I was reading at that time that had to do with limits to growth, actually. Uh, One really significant book for me was um, Daniel Quinn's Ishmael, and uh, it had a a very impacting influence on me, and I started thinking about the industrial society that we live in, and uh, and was incredibly disillusioned, so I, I left school. And um, and I went into the uh, land above my parents' um, house, which was kind of national forest land in the Rocky Mountains, and uh, built myself a little cabin up there with their with their permission. Um, and under the guise of sort of homeschooling myself, and and while I was there, I um, was reading about the Amish as a a, a group of people, a community that didn't go into the kind of industrialized society, largely because of religious reasons, but also a, a deep distrust in the the kind of acceleration of the machine. And, um, and so I wrote to an Amish community at, at age 14 and, and asked them whether they would be open to have me come and, and help really on their farm. And to my astonishment, they wrote back and, and welcomed me actually. So I took a, a Greyhound bus from New Mexico all the way across the United States to, to Michigan. Um, it took me, I think three days and I spent the night in a a bus station in Chicago. And, and this was really the first time that I had left New Mexico. And so I was pretty overwhelmed by the the overwhelm of um, the kind of American sort of society and, and the speed of things and the racism that I, I witnessed on that trip. So I ended up staying with this Amish community over uh, two summers. And while I was there, I helped with uh, everything, really, with the family. They had five children. And and while I was there, the, uh, the mother, she was pregnant with her, her fifth child. And because of the laws in Michigan, it was illegal to have a home birth. So in this community, where there was, you know, very strict uh, rules around modesty and, you know, community values. Um, because of the laws, she actually was taken out of the community into a modern obstetric hospital to give birth, even though it was her fifth child. And so I looked after the children. She went into the hospital, and it was incredibly traumatic for her because, of course, there were male doctors, and she was uh, on a operating table to give birth. You know, um, even though it was a completely normal physiological process, and I was horrified. And I really got to that point where I thought, if I ever have to have a normal job, then I want to be in a position where I can offer safe medical care to women wherever they are in childbirth and and not to take them out of their communities unless there's risk. But if it's just a normal physiological process, then she should be in the the circle of her community and um, the safe medical care should be there for her in her context. Um, So that planted a seed in terms of Midwifery and um, and also, I was thinking a lot about uh, transition states and uh, just the enormity of impact that uh, the kind of foundation of a mother 's love has on the child 's life and uh, and having come from a really nurturing family you know I, I saw my sister being born at home when I was six, and I had really vivid memories of my mother. Um, you know, in the in the throes of labor and the, the trauma of seeing that as a child, but then seeing also her courage and the utter joy when the, the baby was born, when my sister was born. And, and that gave me this sort of insight into what it's like to engage with suffering and struggle and um, and to have the courage and the love around you to, to move through that instead of having, you know, uh, anesthetics or or, um, drugs to try and make it better, but actually to have courage and and confidence to do that. And then the incredible joy and overwhelming love and uh, reward of having gone through such a challenging experience on the other side. So it had a big impact on me seeing my sister born and seeing the the incredible joy. I remember running outside as a six-year-old, and and being so overwhelmed that all I could do was just gather armfuls of sunflowers, and you know, come and just lavish my mother with flowers, and and it was such a incredible joy to to see the relief of having the that transition state um, navigated in such a, a powerful way. So when I Left the uh, the Amish community for the second time and went back to my little cabin uh, in the in the Rocky Mountains. I was herding goats and making goat cheese and was living up there. I I spent four years on my own reading, um, you know, everything I could get up my hands on in terms of uh, literature and um, you know the Russian classics and um, and basically ended up taking a so-called high school completion test just to demonstrate that I had kind of done some sort of homeschooling and, um, and I passed that, you know, quite easily. So I had a high school certificate, even though I had basically not really done conventional schooling at all. Um, And when I was then uh, 19, the uh, situation changed and I actually had to leave that land. Um, And so I was then faced with re-engaging with the system. And so I decided that I would go into the heart of the system and uh flew to london and I was challenging myself really to see whether I could stay true to my values of simplicity and um and connection and and love you know the the things that I had really found meaningful uh even within the kind of rush of of society and so I enrolled in a course uh, at Emerson College for a year, uh, studying history of culture and uh, with a, a lot of art involved. And took that year to really think about this question of if I need a career, if I need to have a, a job, a proper job in this society, then if it is to be a midwife, where would I study? Um, because of course in the, in the United States, uh, midwives are very rare and they have a lot of limitations. And so I researched about uh, the different options and, um, and actually in Holland, they've got a great system, uh, but I don't speak Dutch. And so what I found in my research was that actually New Zealand has got an amazing midwifery system here because it's based on continuity of care, which means that one midwife will look after the couple from conception all the way through their pregnancy, their birth, and then six weeks after the birth. And so I was so, um, Convinced about the the need to support the entire journey, that uh, it was clear to me that that New Zealand was was very progressive. Uh, it was publicly funded. It was it was a great education system here. So I came to New Zealand. So that's the story of how I got here. Uh, and I enrolled in university, even though I didn't have proper high school qualifications, and um, and got accepted immediately at every university that I applied to. So then I had a choice to study here and uh, and had a. a very interesting degree and was offered a mentorship in a community midwifery practice here in Kapiti. Um, And this was 19 years ago. Uh, And I thought that I would start by working here for a year just to consolidate my skills. Um, But my vision was really about working with with resource poor communities, simple communities that needed expert medical uh, support. And so I always thought that I would end up going to Africa or some developing, so-called developing country. Um, but my family were here now as well. And, uh, and I met my partner and, um, and so I just got very uh, grounded in my practice here and ended up working with Maori women up in Otaki. So it's a community uh, just a little bit north of here, 20 minutes from where I live and uh, and i loved I really loved working with teenage mothers and then I ended up working with a bunch of gang girls and just absolutely loved uh, looking after young women and um, and Maori traditional birthing practices and then I um decided that I did need to also have the the more um, adventuresome experience so i I ended up going to Papua New Guinea then um, a few years later and working in the hinterlands of Papua New Guinea, which was the sort of life experience that is actually hard to describe if you haven't experienced it because it's such a very, very different world. Um, I flew into Port Moresby and then had to wait for a week until some little bush pilot was heading into um into the highlands and we ended up, you know, taking this tiny little plane and landing on a a grass airstrip, which was actually more big mud puddles than anything. And I had uh, actually made contact with a doctor, a New Zealand doctor who was way up uh, at this health camp, which uh, is actually the most remote so-called hospital in the Pacific. So after landing on this tiny little grass airstrip, we still had to go up a river in a dinghy for eight hours in order to reach this little so-called hospital, which was really just uh, a collection of grass huts way, way out in the jungle. And there were no roads, there's no electricity, no running water. Um, but this remote hospital was serving a huge population of uh, Indigenous people who um, would come and uh, have all sorts of extreme infections. And, ampute- you know, they needed amputations, they needed all sorts of stuff. So. I stayed at that um, at that hospital and thought that I would be doing, you know, midwifery, uh, but ended up having some extremely unusual experiences with, you know, needing to sew an arm back on and, you know, trying to diagnose appendicitis without a scanner. And I mean, it was just doing the best we could with the resources that we had. And uh, so life you know, life-changing experiences and memories that, that I'll never forget. Uh, and so then I came back to New Zealand, and, and over the next sort of 10, 15 years, I ended up just doing various trips back and forth. I never stayed for a huge, long placement because I loved my practice here in Kapiti so much. So I would go to Vanuatu, and I did a lot of teaching of um, emergency skills, obstetric emergency skills. And then um, my trips, uh, I went to the Solomon Islands and and was teaching there in a a program for health workers. And then the last trip that I did was in 2019, and and I actually went over to the Solomon Islands again to do quite an extensive research study on access to family planning, contraception for, for women there, because a lot of the deaths that we were seeing in mothers was actually women that were having, you know, their sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth baby, and they were dying in childbirth from hemorrhage, and they didn't want to be pregnant. And so offering them contraception was actually a way of preventing maternal death, uh, because if you don't get pregnant, you can't die in childbirth. Um, so the, the research study was incredibly interesting, and we went all around the outskirts of uh, Guadacanal in a little dinghy, and, and the The local communities were just so welcoming and and the research was really in in very close partnership with them they ended up directing it really and i just wrote it up and um and then we published in a in a journal so it was incredibly incredibly meaningful and, and satisfying but the the last time that i was there um i had never sort of lost sight of the wider ecological crisis and Flying back and forth was becoming more and more difficult for me emotionally. Uh, just that sense of contributing personally to the environmental problem. And, um, and during that trip, I saw the coral that was bleached and um, and I just really came to this conclusion that i I just couldn't fly anymore. I, I, I really couldn't be complicit with you know the, the enormous emissions and, and supporting the aviation industry like that. So I came back to New Zealand in, in 2019, and with this real commitment that I actually just need to work locally. And as much as I love midwifery, I also felt like the amount of dedication that I had put into supporting mothers to be empowered through their birthing experiences so that they felt really confident and um, and really engaged with claiming their baby, that sort of bonding that, that enabled the, the love, that sort of fierce maternal love to be uninterrupted, I really started thinking about the, you know, the earth is our mother and we are the children and, and what are we doing to our mother? And so I, I really wanted to do more activism and advocacy beyond just protecting mothers and their their children to to really looking at protecting nature. And so I was at, at this time too I was reading more and more becoming more and more distressed about climate change and the kind of great acceleration where you see all those hockey stick graphs where you know everything is getting worse quickly and and just exponential you know accelerations on on all sorts of planetary boundaries and then I realized that It's actually not just climate change we're talking about overshoot of a number of ecological boundaries uh, and that climate change is really just a symptom of all these other problems and that these problems are a result of of our our growth you know we're we're there's so many of us and we're consuming you know natural resources and we're dumping waste and we're we're destroying the planet and this is our home and and we have uh we have so much to lose, and so the enormity of the crisis really hit me uh, emotionally. And um, and of course, you know the the problems with growth, the problems with fossil fuels, and and you know understanding that that green growth has kind of been offered as the solution. We just need to you know fix climate change by electrifying everything. But of course, electrifying everything. Uh, Relies on technology, which relies on mining, which you know is of course more ecological damage, and um, and also you know electrifying everything is in terms of emissions, it, it might be really really helpful. But I was also really impacted by Professor Vaklov Smil's four pillars of modern civilization idea, which um, he talks about how actually. Our modern civilization relies on cement, steel, plastics, and ammonia. So fertilizers, and all of those are reliant on fossil fuels. So you know emissions. It's not just about transport. It's it's actually our whole system is is out of control, and it's this huge machine that's um, that's the problem. So. Then I was also learning about net energy, which I know that Nathan talked about with you last time, and um, and really that you cannot sort of fix everything. You cannot use technology to to fix the multiple systems collapse that we're facing. That you know, electrifying the Titanic is um, is not going to do anything about the multiple icebergs all around us. So. That then really brought me to this point of uh, looking around for um, what other community groups there might be, and interestingly, there was a, a presentation at, at Parliament last year. I think it was in, in June or July that was organised by the Wise Response uh, organisation, and um, and it was called something like Limits to Growth. So I immediately thought that's that's what I'm interested in. So I went to this presentation and was so inspired to finally arrive uh, at discussion that was looking at the kind of wider systemic problems. And and Mike Joy was somebody who I knew had talked about degrowth. And so I was a bit audacious and I actually sent him a text message and just said, you know, is there any kind of degrowth something happening in New Zealand? Is there something here in an organization? And, and he wrote right back and he said, well, you know, there's a few of us who are trying to get something organized, but you know, we need somebody to, to get on board and, and coordinate us, would, you know, would you do it? And uh, so I was a, a bit shocked by that, but I had actually um, also put my thoughts together into a bit of a essay, into an article. So I sent that to Jack Santa Barbara, um, which was what um, Mike Joy had recommended that I talk to Jack and, and also to Deirdre Kent, uh, because they were the people who were trying to get this Degrowth Aotearoa New Zealand organization. Um, kind of up and going, and Jack just immediately wrote, wrote back, and I remember his comments so clearly. He said, oh, finally someone who really gets it." So I thought, okay, these are my my people, and uh, and so we we met and formed a bit of a uh, committee, and that was the the beginning of um, my involvement with dance. And um, and I guess the the real driver for me was this fear of, of collapse, you know, that um, the the impacts on, on basic life support systems uh, from a medical perspective, you know, thinking about what do we do and food security? What about community cohesion? Uh, when, you know, if there's greater disruptions, there's also likely to be greater conflict. Um, and so the the focus for me became really clear that we need to rethink our collective priorities. And, you know, I, I think that Mike Joy has got this great uh, analogy that he uses that I just think is, is perfect. He talks about us being, you know, the sort of pinnacle of the, the fossil fuel party. And, uh, and we're all having this great party. It's, there's lots of luxury and, and we're having everything that we want. And in fact, we've got the sense of entitlement. And it's like we're these teenagers that are just drunk on fossil fuels. And, you know, at some point the party's gonna end and we're gonna have trashed the house, we've got waste everywhere. And uh, yeah, and so I guess for me, the degrowth movement is that sense of needing to mature, needing to, you know, become adults in this society now and to take responsibility, to recognize limits and and really be aware that there are consequences of, of what we're doing. Uh, to take responsibility and and we need to really reconsider what needs to be done and then to work out how and we need to focus on sufficiency Uh, we need to learn how to share resources more fairly Uh, we need to focus on qualitative improvements and crisis preparedness and in some ways um, you know we've we've learned quite a lot from the pandemic I think you know, we saw that by shutting everything down to a much, much slower pace that, in fact, we did reduce emissions and people were more relaxed and we sure worked out who the essential workers are. And I can tell you those, those lockdowns were certainly hard on some of us. Um, it was horrendous. Uh, but we, you know, we discovered what it, what it really, what we need, um, as the kind of basic, basic services and, um, yeah, so that's my my background,
0: really. Fascinating and certainly um, very unique in terms of your life experience. And this is what's going to lead us to, to to the conversation we'll have now, because it, it, it truly is a, a very different perspective on life in general. Now, our podcast, you know, the purpose of our podcast is to advocate for change. We acknowledge that there's a big need for change, the way we live, the way we behave. And one of the concepts around the mechanics of how we live is this concept of degrowth and you've mentioned that already and it's it's a conversation we're having more and more about but degrowth is is one of those words that whilst can also be very aggressive and very off-putting it can also have various definitions around it i guess mm-hmm. depending on on the perspectives that 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 one has mm. in your view what is degrowth and leading from that and this is where we can start diving into a little bit more is how do you see degrowth impacting society in general the way we live we've spoken a lot about the mechanics what we need to do but what does it actually mean from that perspective
2: yeah thank you and this is what i've been just hankering to get to with with you guys and and more generally and you know, there's um, just this massive upswell of interest, and Jack and I are doing uh, two webinars um, coming up in the next two weeks, and and so this is the conversation that, that we need to be having more widely, and um, and you know, starting with the the word "ben," like I, I think it's it's a great starting point because it is such a confronting word. You know, why why do we use "degrowth"? It's really um, it's very uh, Kind of in your face and um, initially usually there's a bit of a kind of cringe and people think you know why would you talk about anything that's opposing growth because you know growth is such a uh, an important thing but the the place that i've come to with it is that i'm actually really i'm really aligned with the name and it deirdre wrote an article saying you know it's the the word to hate and then accept and i think uh we need to discuss the deliberate and confronting nature of the name because it is a critique of growth. And uh, Nathan, in his interview with you recently, talked about it. You know, it's a polemic. It's it's really stating um, what you know. It's it's against the kind of growthism in our society, which has become a fundamentalist belief system. You know, really fundamentalist. And for for many people, it's. Become easier to imagine the the end of the world than the end of growth, so uh, the name is important, and it starts conversations and certainly you know I'm having conversations all the time i'm I'm getting interrupted by uh, requests for meetings a lot and um and you know in the supermarket or at the post office recently somebody was asked not the post office the um the bookshop with the post office. Uh, two young teenagers were asking me about this, you know, what is this degrowth thing? So it's it's a good starting point. And there are multiple definitions. Uh, and I, I think it's good to just really think about the definition because, um, you know, there's it's such a broad movement that uh, the classical definition is it's quite long and it's quite technical and it's hard to remember. And so I kind of go with a... a a briefer explanation, which um, Yorgos Callas, actually I like his definition, which is that degrowth refers to a radical political and economic reorganization leading to drastically smaller, much more equitably shared resources and energy use. Uh, My own definition of degrowth is that it's a purposeful strategic framework to reduce consumption to achieve social and ecological well-being. But uh, basically, it's an equitable managed reduction of material throughput. And throughput is something that we are talking about a lot because it's not understood very well. Um, And throughput is really the idea that the, uh, the resources we use, the natural resources, Come from nature, they go through the economy, and we dump them as waste. So throughput is that uh, movement of resources through the economy, and then the, the kind of spewing out as waste on the other side, which also, you know, damages the environment. But I think, you know, right from the beginning, one of the things that I've learned is that um, there is this very, very uh, common misunderstanding about degrowth. That it's somehow um, a recession. You know, if you if you slow economic growth, then you end up with a recession. And, and that's, I think, one of the first things that I always want to clarify with people is that degrowth is planned, unlike recession, which is chaotic and socially destabilizing, and occurs when growth-dependent economies fail to grow. So, degrowth is a planned frame, framework, and uh, and that's what makes it, you know, different to recession. But on top of that, you know, I, in my um, conversations with different people and, and different audiences and age groups and stuff, I sometimes resort to the kind of easy ways to describe it, sort of quick phrases, such as um, an economy that doesn't cost the earth. Or sometimes I refer to the old saying, which is um, live simply so that others may simply live. Or uh, one, one of my favorites, which I tease my joy about, which is less stuff, more joy. Um, it's an economy of enough. And it's basically, you know, it really simply basically comes down to that, you know, what we're talking about is quality, not quantity. Uh, so the argument for degrowth is that we need to abandon the ideology of constant, constantly pursuing economic growth as something that is good, desirable, necessary, natural, because really it's none of these things. And, um, and if we want to stay within planetary limits, that makes sense. We need to change and transform our economy and how we organize our lives. Uh, you know, this is, this is a big, big project. And a lot of it, I think, if you think about sort of having a when to stop rule, it's like we cannot keep growing on this finite planet. And in fact, you know, when you think about Our bodies and and everything I think about always comes through a medical lens and and sometimes I apologize for that, but it's also incredibly useful. It's like, yes, we grow, but then at some point we have the homeostasis in our body that stops growing and we're in a stable, stable state. And um, so degrowth is really about working out the the when to stop rule together based on parameters of sufficiency and and sufficiency is what i've become more passionate about than anything recently because i think sufficiency is a mechanism that we can relate to it's like you know we we need to think about staying within limits so so what is it that we need to to have have enough and i think food is a, another good example for that it's like do we really need 20 different options for breakfast or can we just have You know really high quality porridge and everyone has their you know delicious porridge but doesn't need 20 different options so i think there's ways of working this out together where we can uh you know make agreements around what what it is that's sufficient and um yeah but but degrowth is wider than that too you know there's very very strong values about intergenerational justice and wealth redistribution and ultimately it's about reestablishing our relationship to the living world. And, uh, and for me, you know, the thing that I'm really passionate about is that it's rebuilding a culture of care and relationship, you know, relationship to self and our own emotions and our own sense of sufficiency enoughism, you know, individually within ourselves, but also relationships with each other and relationships with nature, of course. Uh, and and what I found really inspiring and and um, kind of reassuring is that when I talk about this stuff, you know, people just get it. it. It makes sense, and so when we talk about limits to growth, you know, most people don't argue with that because this stuff does really—it's—it's it's common sense, and uh, and so that's what yeah, what I think makes it a very powerful movement.
1: You've mentioned that it's 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 pretty clear that we're living in in inequitable society at the moment and you know it's not just between the global north and the global south but within countries like new zealand and australia you know since neoliberalism's really taken hold the divide between rich and poor the funneling of wealth the privatization of services cut back on publicly funded support structures all this kind of stuff that the systems that are now in place they have impacts on our societal values um, and even if it's being gradual over time and we might not even be aware of it happening it's now quite wide-reaching I would argue um obviously not a sustainable way to live if we want to live within planetary boundaries and you've already touched on a number of things I think are really kind of key but what would you love to see start changing quite strongly mm-hmm. in terms of our society values um, you know, what, yeah. what's truly important that can actually transition this degrowth as, as quickly as possible.
2: I know, because it's all about, it's all about the speed, you know, and, and I think that what, you know, makes our position quite strong is that everything that we're talking about is based on empirical evidence and science, you know, and we are living in a world that is basically, the way I think about it is it's like our industrialised society has colonised the world. And and I think that's what makes New Zealand quite unique too is that um, you know, degrowth thinking is not new to indigenous people. This is the way that they live, this is their mindset, this is you know, living with within harmony with nature is is fundamental to a sense of identity and, and balance within the community. So um how do we bring about, you know, a, a shift in mindset? I think that's related to what you ask, Emma, isn't it? Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, we, we have got such a crisis on our hands. You know, we've got the, the speed of the crisis. We've also got the, the scope, you know, this is global and we've got the scale, which is, you know, the, everything is at risk. So this is really, really urgent stuff. And again, you know, I, I kind of come back to my medical sort of experience. It's like, if you, if you have somebody who's dying, but you know, you treat them for a broken arm. It's like, you're not addressing the whole organism and, and you're not responding with the sort of urgency that's needed. And so, um, yeah, it's, I do think that uh, we need to shift mindset as quickly as possible. And the degrowth movement is totally uh, inspiring in the way that it's, it's taking off. I mean, it's not new. Um, the modern version has been around for about 20 years, uh, arising out of Europe. But of course, the Limits to Growth study was published 50 years ago. And um, and yet, you know, in Europe, they've just had this big post-growth conference. And, you know, there were uh, leaders there from political parties and uh, people are taking notice. And, you know, James Shaw has said that it's time for New Zealand to be having a, a conversation about degrowth. And, So the movement is is really big and complex and and so that does mean that there's contradictions and variations and it is in a constant process of uh emerging clarity and um kind of evolving um and and what i've come to realize is that you know like most things it's a continuum you know there's degrowth light which is basically you know changing some things and trying to kind of reduce consumption in a in a kind of minimal way. There's a, a whole kind of business area that's looking at degrowth. But then on the other end of the continuum is the, the disaster preparedness. It's like things are going to, um, there are going to be disruptions, whether it's climate change that's bringing disruptions or energy descent, you know what you were talking about with Nathan. It's like it is guaranteed that there are going to be uh, disruptions. And so we really need to work out what needs to be done and, and how. And I guess that brings me to uh, describe our approach from Dan's. Um, and, uh, and I'd love to just give you a quick overview of the basic concepts and, and the goals that, that we're holding. Um, but as I mentioned before, you know, our, our version is really based on empirical evidence and science and, um, and facing the enormity of the crisis. And um, yeah, so, so shall I talk about the, the three main goals? and uh, some of the priority actions to kind of make it a bit more intangible, perhaps. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, well, I guess part of the the conversation is that, you know, we're, we're hoping to be proactive instead of reactive. You know, we've seen what's happened with Cyclone Gabriel on the East coast and flooding in, in various areas in Auckland, certainly, you know, Ben, I'm sure you've experienced some of the disruptions up there from climate. So um, we want to sort of, have as much of a plan towards expecting these disruptions, uh, instead of just constantly having that reactive kind of ambulance at the bottom of the cliff sort of thing. So degrowth goals, um, for us, we've really looked at sort of three main goals to try and make it uh, as kind of simple and, and coherent as possible. And the first goal, of course, is this idea of managed reduction of throughput, uh, which I described before, which is the natural resources that go into the economy and then get spewed out as waste on the other end. So we need to, um, we need to reduce drastically because currently we are about double where we need to be. And so that means you know, restricting luxury goods and banning destructive substances like artificial fertilizers and forever chemicals. Uh, so that kind of managed uh, reduction needs to be um, it needs to be very significant. and so it will likely lead to a reduction in GDP. Um, but with the disruptions that are coming, that uh, leads us to our second goal, uh, which is that we need to really plan and think carefully about providing supports. when when disruptions become um, much more felt you know individually in our our communities so that means things like uh, really prioritizing universal basic services so health housing food education uh, focusing on security and um, things like universal basic income and reduced working time uh, guaranteed for work because of course if you reduce the economic activity, then you're also going to be, you know, needing less uh, work time, but but people also need to be guaranteed work. Um, so providing those supports at a community level is, is a really important goal. The third goal is that you know we really need to focus on systemic change to provide the support, yeah, to to support the transition to what we call a steady state economy. So. Degrowth is the, the path, you know, it's about really transforming the way that we organize our lives towards a steady state economy, which is the kind of arrival point where we can be in a kind of homeostasis, you know, it's, it's uh, that when to stop rule. And um, so systemic changes would include things like rationing fossil fuels, which is the only certain way of controlling emissions, um, things like tradable energy quotas, which are not very well known, but we're doing our best to educate. And we've got a petition to, you know, try and get um, government to consider this. It's, a, it's an equitable use of fossil fuel that can be uh, reduced year by year. And um, I'd really love to talk more about that, but probably not tonight. Um, Deirdre Kent is the expert on tradable energy quotas, and I would really recommend that you maybe do a podcast with her. Um, because it's a fascinating thing to think about. And if it were implemented, it would have a massive impact on controlling emissions. But back to the third goal, systemic changes, would also include things like um, you know, tax taxes and redistributing uh, resources and, and taxing resources and not labor. Um, so that redistribution and um, having something like a minimum and a maximum Income for people so that you have people, you know supported but also that there's a maximum income and it's not all about just the wealthy getting wealthier Uh, Focusing on community resilience and of course, you know resilience means simplification. So core priorities for communities We've seen some absolutely amazing examples of community response to the cyclone uh, up in Tarafiti Um, Other systemic changes would be things like really um, ramping up citizens assemblies, which are democratic ways of of making decisions and have been proved um, really effective in other places. So, you know, that would be another recommendation I would have is we could talk all about citizens assemblies. And and I think Jack would be a really neat person to talk to about that because he's got great experience and and knowledge about that. But really focusing on, you know, local government and. um and, you know, local governments are, are connected to their communities. They're much more agile. And it was interesting. I don't know if you guys heard, but on the radio today, they were talking about central government, you know, um, investing more in, in in local government. And certainly we support that strongly. So, yeah. And then there's things like transitioning from a debt-based money system, uh, which, you know, the, our current money system depends on growth. So that, that needs to change too. So those are our three main goals, really. It's the, the reducing through... Throughput, ensuring that supports are in place, and then working towards systemic change. That's a, an overview of, of our approach to degrowth. Um, and the priority actions are, are really to reprioritize what we use in the economy um, for essential needs, making sure that, that basic human needs are met at the community level. Uh, as I mentioned before, health services, food security, water, shelter. And building networks and um yeah and and with you know community action um there's also an impact you know in terms of the whole political thing if if people are informed and aware and willing to to make changes and they're much more likely to to push politicians and um and get the kind of top-down changes that we need that we need um yeah and then you know there's other things as well, like the non-material needs. So degrowth is really focusing a lot on uh, emphasizing our human needs um, that are non-material. So having more time and uh, investing in relationships as I mentioned, creativity, um, having a voice, identity, um, alternative sources of energy, like uh, really exploring joy and creativity and intimacy and doing things together sharing because you know we're we're social beings and we gain enormous satisfaction from connection and doing things together
0: now you mentioned uh community resilience Uh, let's talk a little bit more about that in terms of engaging various communities how do we bring together the various socioeconomic groups because some have had it good or have it yeah. good at the moment, yeah. and some are not benefiting as much. And yeah. one could say, you know, you said earlier that, you know, indigenous way of of thinking, indigenous way of living, they've known these principles. But the way society has moved, or first world society has moved through colonialism and so on, is they've all of a sudden become the ones that have been that have lost out effectively yeah. in the yeah. in the name of progress and the name of advancements and, and so on. But now we're saying, well, we've had it too good. We need to go back. Mm. But how do you bring the two together? Because shouldn't some groups feel, well, hang on, you know,
2: mm.
0: why, why should we change now when we haven't been the cause of this?
2: Mm. Well, I, I think that maybe that's another misunderstanding that G-growth is really talking about the industrialized nations and, and those of us who are living in industrialized ways. So, you know, as I mentioned before, degrowth thinking is not new to indigenous people. So the, the principles of degrowth are um, already present and, and we need to pivot towards their way of being. So we're not asking for those who are living in a balanced way to reduce. Not at all, you know, what we're, what we're talking about. And can I just, here's another little analogy, which I think is really, really helpful. It's like, we are the obese nations, us industrialized societies. So we are the ones who are obese, we are consuming too much, and we need a diet. So we need to reduce our calorific intake, we need to really get healthier in the way that we live, but, you know, other people who are not obese, who are not overweight, do they need a diet? Do children need a diet? You know, it's really about us taking responsibility. We are the over-consumers. And so many of the of the, the communities and the um, the people around the world, you know, I'm thinking about my communities in, in the Pacific, you know, Solomon Islands. What an inspiring group of people. You know, these are villages that are absolutely living in balance, they've got a high life satisfaction. There's a lot of, you know, singing and participating and degrowth, they don't need this, you know? So, so it's really for us and and the principles of degrowth that, you know, it's about sustainability and and circularity, but it's also things like cooperatives, useful production. You know, we need to focus on what is needed um, and and not just, you know, useless luxury stuff, Uh, local production. And much more emphasis on sharing, uh, sufficiency for all and excess for none. And uh, G- Jeanette Fins- Fitzsimmons talked a lot about you know needing to share more fairly and and really focusing more on things like collectives and um, the commons. You know, even thinking about how do we share resources in terms of uh, property and um, commoning is a, a thing that the degrowth scholars in Europe are talking about a lot Um, work-life balance you know that's a a big part we need to work less and play more and uh, and I've got a huge thing about playfulness and and how incredibly important it is that we've got playfulness in our lives and having a sense of um, you know joy that that doesn't rely on stuff Uh, so relational goods you know less stuff more relationships so these are the sort of principles of degrowth that a lot of communities already embrace
1: I think the key word there is community I know with like our chat with Nathan that was a really important point to drive home that individual action while it's admirable we're not going to achieve the scale of the changes that are necessary without really getting involved in the community and fostering that
2: and, and shifting, you know, I think a really big thing for me is shifting the mindset away from this hyper individualism. You know, we've been driven to believe that we want to be independent and we, you know, it's all about me and, and my success and my progress and shifting into a mindset of collectivism. You know, we need each other. And in fact, contributing is so satisfying. Doing something to enable someone else and, you know, to see them flourish is deeply satisfying. So, I think a lot of degrowth thinking is a lot about shifting to a, a collectivism and a, and a mindset based on the values that are um, away from the individual. Is is kind of this very uh yeah it's a it's a limited way of seeing things and actually you know i, I think when you look at our society now this growth-based society it's yes we've got a, a bigger economy than ever before but we've also got you know higher mental health problems and you know loneliness i think the u.s has recently developed this kind of loneliness commission or something similar and you know our health issues are worse we've got higher rates of obesity it's like this growthism you can see it from the micro to the macro and um and so you know having a bigger economy is it really serving us uh another thing that I, I sometimes talk about is this um little phrase that i love which is you know that some people are so poor that all they have is money and i think yeah you know the poverty the poverty of this society you know our sense of isolation and deep, you know, deep depression. And are those, you know, are those signs of a a healthy society, big economy, but, you know, I think we really need to rethink what our our meaning is in life. Yeah.
0: So where do we start? We've we say it a lot. We're not going to wait for politicians, governments, we're not going to wait for corporates, we're not going to wait for the supposed leaders. Yeah where do we start and usually i'll say as individuals but we agree as communities how do we how do we initiate this what are the first steps we should be taking
1: conference (laughs) (laughs) nice little segue there (laughs) i just
2: love what you guys are doing you know it's it's just it is so important to be having these conversations and you know i remember last year when i started with uh with dan's i remember thinking oh my god you know what what can we do you know where do we start ben you know the problem is so enormous and i thought okay here's my objective the one thing that maybe i can influence and i thought i need to be realistic and so i thought well what about just thinking about you know my goal is to get degrowth into the national conversation and you know what six months later There are so many news articles being published. You know, there's a webinar that um, I've been invited to that Gareth Hughes is organizing with James Shaw, you know, our climate minister. He wants to talk about degrowth. So we are getting this into the national uh, conversation and mindset shift. You know, this is the big thing. It's like, okay, action, yes. But actually we we need to be shifting the mindset around where the priorities are. It's not just climate change. You know, that's what we've been focused on for such a long time. And now people are starting to get their heads around overshoot. You know, oh, climate change is just one little narrow part of this much bigger, wider, you know, multi-systems problem. And uh, so, you know, it's waking people up to, okay, the solutions that we thought were going to work are not working. And so we need to think differently. And then once we start thinking differently, then it's like, well, how do we act differently? And so, you know, things like... um, you know, individual action is, is, of course, part of that. And I could talk for ages about, you know, voluntary simplicity. And, you know, we live in a tiny house and, um, you know, I bike everywhere. I've gotten away from my car. And the joy of that, you know, the individual satisfaction of living slower and more simply and then connecting with other people who are doing that too, who are like, yeah, man, this system is is not working. We want to live differently, but we need systemic changes to enable that, because, of course, not everyone has the privilege. So, yeah, so talking about it, getting it into the national conversation. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, influencing decision makers to, to reprioritize things. Uh, that's all part of DANS. And so we are organizing this conference to bring people together and, um, and in a collaborative way work out, you know, what, what we need to do uh, to influence systemic change, but also how we can help, you know, businesses be far more degrowth minded so that, you know, profit is not so much the imperative, but rather supporting people, you know, the whole kind of social enterprise idea and um, collectives. And, you know, certainly the tiny house movement is something I'm really passionate about. Uh, so there's actually a lot that can be done um, from the individual all the way to the you know, the entire society, Um, but it starts with awareness and priorities.
0: Taking action can actually be the easy part. It's exactly what you say, it's a change in mindset. That's the hard bit, because often we can volunteer for things. We can say, I need to do a bit of this, I need to do a bit of that. But we don't actually change that mindset, then it's just token. And it's only one small component of the bigger picture. So like you say, conversations are hugely important. You have repeated so many times in, in your conversations around the importance of community, the cohesive approach. And that's where conversations are had, right? Sharing yeah. ideas, sharing uh, success stories. And that's exactly what you've brought to this conversation, which we're so immensely grateful for. Like you say, it's it's you've said this right at the start. It's unconventional. It's a different approach, but it's what I call the softer approach, you know, we have looked a lot at the mechanics of degrowth, what it means. We look at energy systems and, you know, the, it's, it's, all, it's all the complicated science stuff. But hang on, there's, there's the social aspect that we often forget. It's the social um, side of things that, that usually gets the most impacted. And mm. if you don't acknowledge that, it'll be hard to implement change on a grand scale. So mm. the the perspective and the views that you've shared from your immensely uh, fascinating journey that you've had as a, as uh, through your life you your, you know through your life has been is 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 an asset. Um, we need more people like you to mm. to to front up and 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 lead. So thank you for for sharing such wonderful. I mean, we could have a three four hour conversation, like you say, so many other aspects we can delve into, but. Um, a really thoughtful and or thought provoking actually conversation so mm. thank you for that sarah
2: yeah, well, and I think you know like even in in the small things that we do, I think if we really think about the things that bring us deep satisfaction, you know this is something that each one of us can can take a moment to sort of think about. You know, often when you think about those times in your life when you felt real satisfaction, not just the kind of spike of happiness, which is often, you know, a a, a transient thing, but deep satisfaction often is about non-material things. So it's about those times when you are in connection with your your family and your friends and uh, doing things together or, you know, tasks that you may have accomplished that were really challenging, but you know, probably really meaningful for you or, or for someone else, you know, maybe a task that you did that uh, contributed to somebody else's um, well-being. You know, those are the priorities that that I think are very much, Nathan and I often talk about sort of 21st century thinking. It's like we're really starting to see that the myth of our society, you know, we've we've been told so many things that are actually not helpful and we really need to rediscover, you know, what is it really to have a a meaningful life and a lot of that is to do with um you know the the sufficiency and the the simplicity of of feeling like you know you're you're connected and um you're not constantly chasing this sort of illusion and on this treadmill of of trying to kind of get bigger but but really having your needs met and the security of that and um and we need a, a system that enables that for everyone. So we, um, with our conference, can I talk about that for a quick minute?
0: Yes, please. Yeah. Yep.
2: So it's been quite a, um, I guess this was, you know, for me personally, it was like, how do we, how do we broaden our movement? How do we help people to come together to, to think about the, the action, you know? And, and how do we spread the kind of, um, the passion that we have for a new way of, of living? Because... I guess one thing that I've heard a lot in in the conversations that I've had is that people are really tired from like the sense of constantly fighting against something. It's like we've had our climate marches, you know, and, and nothing has really changed. And we've signed petitions and we've written and we've, you know, we've done all this stuff to try and kind of fight against the system. But part of what I think really inspires people is that degrowth offers something to fight for. It's like, we want to live more simply we want to live more connectedly it's like this is the vision that that is actually inspiring and it's it's not just fighting against something it's fighting for something and um and it's a it's a vision of of a way of living that actually could really be far far more um yeah in in balance and you know we're, we're also talking about time horizons i, I think So much of our thinking is short term, you know, election cycles and, you know, the next sort of five years or Paris Climate Accord, you know, the next 10 years or whatever. But, you know, if you think about your time horizon sort of 50 years from here, you know, that really brings me back to my my role as a midwife. You know, I I think what what really powered me into needing to to take on more action and, and get more involved is that with every birth that I was attending, I was thinking about the future of that child. You know, and I kept thinking, you know, our, our ambitions, you know, politically and stuff, they seem so short-sighted. And, you know, what if our time horizon is 50 years from now? You know, would we really be behaving that we are like we are now? So, yeah, so earlier this year, I thought, what, what can I do with dance now? And I thought, OK, time for a national event. We need to bring people together to share ideas because we don't know a lot of this. You know, this is all new. And people, you know, ask me, well, what should we do? And I think, well, we don't have all the answers. We are working this out together, and so we need to collaborate. And and we really need to have an opportunity to to learn from each other and and come up with uh, projects that we can share because it's much easier to do things together and and far more fun <laughs> than trying to battle this stuff through on your own. So I thought, right, okay. National event conference in September, and it's just it's just exploded. And I hope that we can really pull it off because um, I think it's a great opportunity. It will be at Victoria University in Wellington, and um, we've got two days. It's on a weekend, and uh, 16th, 17th of September. Day one is kind of organized as a a day of looking at systemic issues and um yeah, just the kind of bigger, bigger picture. And day two is looking at flex roots, community, you know, action. So day one is top down. Day two is bottom up. So um, just to give you a quick little overview on day one, we've got Nate Hagens, who um, you guys might be familiar with from the Great Simplification. And a lot of your listeners might be familiar with his fantastic podcast, which gives just probably one of the best overviews in terms of our um, our situation and the wider crisis, and also some amazing leaders and, and uh, responses to our situation. So Nate Hagens will um, join us on day one, probably with a recording, because I think he's going to be on um, on a flight that day between Sweden and the U.S. So we've got a special presentation from Nate Hagens, and we've got a, a presenter from Barcelona, uh, which is where the degrowth headquarters are. where the the university is and where all the thought leaders in europe are coming out so we'll have a a guest speaker from barcelona then we've got a session which i'm really excited about which is um talking about the uh the interface between te ao maori and degrowth and what we can learn from from them and really just you know again recognizing that um you know new zealand is based on te tiriti and we are absolutely in partnership here with Maori, and we want to learn and share ideas. So we've got a great session there, and then we've got you know some a panel discussion probably looking at how to mainstream the movement, and uh, and also another panel looking at futures thinking and a real focus on sufficiency. You know, I talked about the the concept of sufficiency before, so we want to think about that as a mechanism in in government. You know. Um, If we organize our, um, you know, policies and the the direction that the government takes across parties, you know, what what would happen if we really frame that around concepts of sufficiency? Um, Would that be a mechanism for actually influencing policy change? Um, And yeah, and then that evening we'll have a, a social event where people can talk and share and hang out and enjoy each other and then... On day two, it will be things like, uh, you know, the universal basic services I talked about, the the health and the um, housing and transport, also business, um, things like, you know, tool libraries and tool sharing and, you know, uh, zero waste businesses, um, the focus on food and food security um, and, you know, cont- uh, container repair schemes. Uh, Those sort of community initiatives, Um, we'll have some great presenters um, talking about that, maybe some stalls where people can mingle and and talk about those sort of community initiatives. And then we also want to touch just briefly on the psychological and emotional. So, you know, if we think about that kind of macro to micro, it's like, yes, we've got society and all the structural, systemic things to be thinking about. and We've got the community side of things, but then, you know, there's also the, the individual. And in our individual lives, you know, a lot of us are having to confront grief and uh, facing into the enormity of the future and the crisis that we live in. And, you know, how do we move forward when we're in a place of um, real concern? And for many people, it's, you know, engaging with that sense of despair and finding, uh, Ways of being real about it, but also sharing um, inspiration and coming to a point of uh, acknowledging the emotional. I, I often think about the cycles of grief that Elizabeth Kubler Ross talked about. You know, initially there's the kind of bargaining, and, and I think that's where we're at in our society. It's like, yeah, sure, green growth is going to fix this. We're in the bargaining phase, right? And then there's the anger phase, and then there's the grief phase, and then you know ultimately we come to acceptance. And what you know what happens when we come to that point of acceptance and the agency uh, that we can find from that place, and and we can perhaps be empowered from a place of acceptance to really reevaluate what's important and what's meaningful. And so that will be the the final um, part of our conference is really looking at the the individual uh, emotional side and, and the importance around connection and care and relationships.
0: So there you have it, Beyond Growth Aotaroa, 16th, 17th of September at Victoria University in Wellington. We'll have the links in the show notes and we'll certainly promote it separately as well. We certainly encourage a lot to attend, especially those of you already in Wellington ride a bike mm. take the public transport get there yeah. and <laughs> learn and then take that back to your communities. Uh Sarah thank you. It's been a fascinating chat. Um we really hope in the future to have you back on the show to 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 sh- to share more but um, best of luck with this with this conference, degrowth conference. Um you know I think it's going to be the first of many important conversations to be had in in our greater community. So thank you so much for yeah. coming on to the show. We really appreciate it.
2: Great. Yeah. And it, it is the, the first of many events. We're hoping to have follow on events and workshops. And, you know, this is just the beginning, as you say. And, and I would just um, flag it for our listeners as well that, you know, if you want to learn more, we've got a really good website, Degrowth um, NZ. People can have a look there. Fantastic resources, a whole lot more information. So um, this conversation, it's been absolutely delightful. But it's also really just the, the tip of the, the water story. So thank you again for everything that you're doing, both of you. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.